everybody. This is Rich Phipps, and I'm the lead pastor of Grace Collective Church. Welcome to our podcast. Whether you're a part of our local church family or a part of our online community, we're so glad that you're here. Enjoy the message. Welcome to Grace Collective. My name is Jonathan Curry. I'm so privileged and happy to be standing before you this morning to preach God's Word. I want to just take a moment for those of you that are online and, and let you in on a little bit of a contest we're running. Uh, if you're online and you're in the chat, you can type the word words. Worship is my life. Now, I'm going to use the phrase worship is life about three billion times in this particular message. I have 75 pages of notes up here that I'm going to read from, and I have calculated that I'm going to use the words worship is life about a billion or three billion times. And so with that, I want to just encourage those of you that are online to type worship is my life. When you do that, we're running a little bit of a contest. Uh, Kenzie, our online uh, helper, is going to be counting the number of times that you catch worship is life online, and you type worship is my life. And those of you that are most accurately uh, connected to the amount of times that I say will be entered into a drawing, and we will pull a, a lucky winner to get an amazing gift card for $3 million at Dunkin' Donut. Dunkin' Donuts, or just maybe 10. It's, it's 10 or 3 million. We're going to have a lead team meeting on Tuesday to decide the final amount. But anywhere between 10 and $3 million, that Dunkin' Donuts gift card will be for you, our online audience. So that being said, I want to just kind of review a little bit about where we've been. We're in this series entitled Life 242, and today we're going to talk a little bit about worship, because worship is life. The last time that we gathered, we talked about the fellowship, and we said that as we spend time with our Creator, as we spend time with God our Father, we have this fellowship that will change us, that will transform us, that will, that will mold us and allow us to become the people that God created us to be. So this morning, I want to talk about this idea because I believe that the early church understood this idea that worship is life. In the verse that Pastor Rich just read, he noted four different pillars of the early church that we want to focus on as we develop an understanding of who Grace Collective is. You see, we don't want to be just another group of people that gather and meet together. That's not our goal. We actually want to be a church that doesn't uh, limit itself to the borders or the walls we find ourselves in. We want to go out and transform the community and the world around us. One of the things that, that Pastor Rich had talked about early on in our formation was that we are better in circles than we are in rows. And I often say that backwards. I'm so happy that I nailed it that time. We're better in circles than we are in rows. We're better in community, gathered together, and this transformative work of God than we ever will be sitting in rows coming to service every Sunday morning. And so that's what this whole series is all about. So the first pillar that we talked about in this series was the teaching of the, apostle, of the apostles. Sounds like a new movie. Tom Cruise in town. I'm an apostle. All right. Sorry, that my, my brain is not suitable for all adults. Okay, so the first one that we talked about was the teaching of the apostles, and where we talked about how the apostles had preached, and they taught the word of God. They took the messages of Jesus, and what he shared, and what he talked about, and they showed, he showed them to us. They, they took all this time to, to break down what Jesus said, what he taught, what he shared with them, and how we can apply those messages to our lives. Then the last time we gathered, we talked about the fellowship, and Pastor Rich talked about the importance of having fellowship with God, and how important that fellowship can be in our everyday life. And so this morning, I'm I'm going to talk about worship is life. If you don't know what the phrase that pays today is going to be, it is worship is life. Say it with me. Worship is life. Worship is life. It's not just about singing in church. Worship isn't just about this 
gathering that we do, but it's about this transformational experience, this transformational worship that we need to have so that we can embrace and become exactly what God created us to be. I'm uh, somebody that likes to, to speak in quotes. I often use movie quotes or things that I've heard along the way just in normal, everyday conversation. And so I often like to, to, to get a good quote and sort of hold on to it. But one of my favorite ones is, not everyone will change the world, but each of us can change someone's world around us. And that change begins with the power that each of us has to develop this idea that worship is life. When Pastor Rich and I began placing... Or, Begin to understand that God was placing on our hearts this idea of preaching the gospel out of Acts 2.42. We were, and we were deciding about whose messages was going to get what and, and who was going to go and this and that. And we knew that there was four pillars. And, and Pastor Rich so graciously said, uh, Jonathan, why don't you go ahead and take two of them? I said, well, yeah, absolutely. Let's pray about you know where you want us to go. And so uh, secretly in that meeting, I was praying that I would get this particular verse because it talks about breaking of bread. I love bread, all kinds of bread. You can butter it, you can toast it, you can do anything you'd like to it, fresh baked rolls, you can put it uh, with some sauce and cheese on it, call it pizza, or as the Israelites called it, manna. Like it's, it's all these things that, that I love about bread. In fact, it's bread that allows me to consume more space on this earth than most of my counterparts. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> Bread is talked about in a lot of different places throughout the Bible, but most famously it's talked about in John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. And I know it doesn't actually say that bread is life, but this carb-loving boy inside of me thinks that the original Greek might actually get us to the place where we can support an all-carb diet. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. All kidding aside, this verse is all about Jesus, the Son of God. In this verse, he's declaring himself to be the bread of life. And what Jesus means here is that he was, uh, that as we take on his teachings, that as we take on his practices, as we accept him as the Lord and Savior of our hearts, we will have an eternal life with him in heaven. So when I think about this, when I, when I read this verse, the imagery of the Israelites wandering through the desert and, and how they received that pizza, that manna every day, that bread-like substance that was literally contained within it, these self-sustaining nutrients that they needed to survive in the desert. If I can make no clearer case that pizza is life, I mean, they, they ate manna, manna and survived in the desert. Bread helped them get to the desert because God supernaturally impacted it and touched it. So as I contemplate Luke's words and Jesus' statement, my mind starts to begin to wonder a little bit. And it begins to think that perhaps as Luke writes about this breaking of bread, he isn't just referring to a meal. All of us will leave this place and we're going to go have a meal. For me, because I have other things that um, are going to take up my afternoon and my evening, that meal is going to be largely about putting nutrients or goodness or something fried in my body that will sustain me for the next couple of hours so that I can get through the tasks of my day. But I think maybe Luke is talking about something a little bit different. Maybe Luke is talking about more than just a moment where the body receives the nutrients and the fuel that it needs. It's interesting to me because as I read these verses, I noticed that Luke doesn't always only use the phrase breaking of bread in Luke 2.42. And a couple of verses later in verse 46, he says, Day by day, um, counting uh, with one mind in the temple. Continuing, I'm sorry. Day by, let me start that verse again. Pretend you didn't hear that. Verse 46 says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So there's a rule that I live my life by. If you say it once, 
probably important. Maybe it is, maybe it is, maybe you're just saying it, but there's something that sticks out to me. If you say it, I'm trying to listen and follow it again. If you say that same thing twice in 30 seconds, there's a reason. There's a point that you're trying to make in that situation. Luke writes it this second time in verse 46, just a couple of verses later from the original places it out there. So it makes me begin to think that the breaking of bread and the gathering was a was something that was significant. In fact, the Bible says in these particular passages that they did it on a daily basis. Now, daily practices aren't accidental. They aren't something that just sort of happens. You don't accidentally daily wake up and eat a cookie. Like, that's, that's an intentional practice in my life. And maybe it's a practice in your life as well. But when we do it daily, there's a decision. There's, a, there's something important that we've decided to do. And the, the disciples are described here in the book of Acts as ones who daily got up and broke bread and, and gathered together. They went to the temple, and they heard the teaching of the apostles. And from there, they go to their life groups, and they talk about what they heard over a meal. It was life for them. And that lifestyle, those life choices, led to world-changing moments in their lives, uh, in their lives, in the lives of the community around them, and in the lives of millions of people, the impact of which we still feel today. In fact, you're here because those disciples and those apostles taught the Word of God to that early church, and that early church went and sat at home, and they sat in their life groups, and they sat in their communities, and they broke bread, and they discussed, and they hung out, and they, they talked about these ideas, and they allowed the messages to transform their lives and become a part of who they were. Now, we don't have all the content of their conversation that's recorded here, but the early church were, weren't just gathering together to eat. They, were, they, were, they weren't just talking about what everybody was tweeting about. They weren't talking about all these trends. They were talking about life. They were talking about the experience of fellowship. They were talking about the teaching of Jesus and of the fellow believers. And all these things began to happen. This transformation began to occur in their lives. And they began to discover that worship is life. Now, often we think of worship as being nothing more than a song that we're going to sing or a chant that we make. And uh, what was the one we said? Hell lost another one. Now I'm free. Now I'm free. And now you see why I don't sing on stage. Um, it's, it's a chant that we make. It's a time that we do on Sunday mornings. It's a, it's a thing that we do that we check off our list. We say, yeah, I went to worship this morning. I took care of that for the week. But what we do is we call this singing, this dancing, this playing of instruments, this lifting of our hands, this crying out of, uh, to God in worship as, as worship. But it's, that's just one element. That's just one facet. That's just one thing that we talk about when we're talking about worship. Worship is so much more than that. So today I want to suggest that if we allow this transforming work of God to take the place in our lives and to begin to, to take place in our lives, to, to allow it to really form and allow it to not just be a list of things that we check off, not just a song that we sing at some moment. I think if we allow it to transform our hearts, we're going to discover that worship is life. Worship is defined by Webster's Dictionary as the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. So as I read that particular definition, there's a couple of things that I found interesting. First, if you'll see it, it's on the screen there. There's no mention of music. There's no mention of dance. In fact, it's a very um, open-ended definition. It allows lots of different items that, that can occur in that particular uh, instance. And I think that that falls in line and is consistent with what we read in Scripture as well. If you did an exhaustive read through the Bible, you're going to discover that worship, while often associated with music in Scripture, is so much more than that. The early church lived a life of worship, of reverence, of honor, of humility, and glory given to God the Father, but they didn't just sing songs, they lived life. 
In fact, they lived a life of worship so convincingly that they were called Christians. Now, they got that name not because there was some sort of marketing meeting in it to determine what would look best on a t-shirt. They, they didn't do it uh, for any other reason. In fact, they were given that name because they were being made fun of. It was a term of mockery. It was a term of teasing that, that they were given. Oh, yeah, those little Christians over there, little Christian, little, little Christ-like people, right? Like your little brother teases you, right? It's like that thing. But they saw them to be just like Jesus. So in the midst of the persecution, I have to ask myself, you see, Jesus was crucified, so following after him wasn't necessarily leading to a promising place, right? The guy died very publicly. Now he rose again, and that's amazing, but there was a long, tough journey. So following after him seems like a little bit of a difficult sell. So why did they do it? Why would they do that? Why would they follow after Jesus? And why did they worship like this? They worshiped like this. They followed after him because they saw Jesus do it. Now, I'm going to admit to you, that is a really mundane and really simple, kind of trivial answer to the question of why do they do it. And I've learned through the course of my life that mimicking is more than something that you can do to annoy your younger sibling. You know, I'm not copying, you're copying me. I'm not copying you, you're copying me. Right? That's, that's not, it's more, it can be more than that. I'm a father now of 14 years of experience. And I've heard myself acting more and more like my own father. Sometimes I do it because I finally understand the wisdom of his words. Like when he used to say, go ask your mother. I used to think he knew nothing. Every time I asked him, he says, go ask your mother. That man knows nothing. What I've learned is the wisdom of not answering any question you don't have to answer. Because you can't get in trouble for that, right? So there's wisdom there. The man was smart is smart. I talk to him as if he's fast. He's right here. All right. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. All right. <laughs> other times, I sound like him because I'm in a situation and I have no other recourse, no other natural reaction. And so I find myself saying the words that he said because when I saw him say those things, it worked out for him really well in the past. These were followers of Christ. They didn't have all the answers that they needed, and so they mimicked their teacher, their mentor. In this case, it was the Son of God. So why did they worship God daily? Because Jesus worshiped his dad every day. He had fellowship with him every day. We read throughout Scripture about how he goes, and he has fellowship, and then talks with God, and shares about God, and has conversations about God. He's talking about his father every day, and so the disciples said, Yes, I'm going to do that. The early church says, yes, I'm going to follow his examples. But the life of Jesus, it wasn't an easy one. In fact, it was, many would describe his teachings that he gave to his apostles as backwards. Jesus teaches us some of the most backward things that, that can be thought of in the eyes of the world. He says, the least is the greatest. Give to be blessed. Give to be, give to be blessed. That doesn't even make any sense. It's a blessing, right? We talk all about that all the time. Serve in order to lead. We don't think of life in that regard. Be humble. When somebody smacks one cheek, turn the other one. That doesn't make any sense. Walk by faith. Don't walk by sight. It's the first thing we do. We turn on our flashlight on our cell phones to see where we're going in dark places. The Bible says walk by faith, not by sight. And it's exactly these backwards teaching. That it's exactly backwards to what the world teaches us. So if we're going to follow the examples of the early church, if we're going to drive the highway the way that God created us to do it, it seems like we're going to have to do some 
backwards driving, if you will. So there's lots of analogies that, that emerge when we talk about explaining the best way to go through life. But I think for me, the most accurate one is that of driving a car. When Joshua and Kirsten were younger, we used to, um, we, we spent $89.99 at Target, and we got dual monitor DVD players that went in the back of our cars. It is the best $90 I have ever spent in my entire life because they put their DVD in there that went in the thing and it played on both screens, and they would just, when we would go on vacation or we would do rides, they would just be so content and so happy. And for anybody that knows the early stages of Kirsten's development as a, as a young lady, um, quiet in the car was not a common thing. So those screens were just amazing. It was a, just an awesome thing. Um, so when they were younger, we had different kinds of uh, Pixar and Disney movies, and they played in the backseat all of the time. And while I loved the quiet, I have now committed several Disney and Pixar movies to memory simply by hearing the audio of the verse because it was playing behind me. So that's all we listened to in the car, in, in, the, in the rides. So one of Josh's favorite movies was uh, Cars. Now, Cars tells the story of Lightning McQueen, who's a race car, who mistakenly takes this detour on his way to the most important race of his life. So while he's on the detour, he rolls into the small town and he meets a bunch of people, or cars, who are... <laughs> who live completely uh, opposite of him. One of the cars' name uh, is a tow truck named Mater, and he becomes best friends with Lightning McQueen. So in the scene that I'm about to show you that we're going to put up here on the screens, uh, it's going to exemplify not only the relationship between Lightning McQueen and Mater, but I think it gives us a very unique insight to living a backwards life. Hey, look, here's Miss Sally. What, where? <laughs> You're in love with Miss Sally. Yes, you do. No way. Come on, look. You're in love with Miss Sally. Okay, that's real mature, Mater. Real grown up. You love her. 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 All right. Okay, Mater, Mater, enough. Will you stop that? Stop what? That driving backwards stuff. It's creeping me out. You're going to wreck or something. Wreck? Shoot. I'm the world's best backwards driver. You just watch this right here, lover boy. What are you doing? Watch out, watch out. need to know where I've been. Whoa, that was incredible. How'd you do that? Rear view mirrors. We'll get you some and I'll teach you if you want. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll use it in my big race. <laughs> I love that clip. In fact, I still say, watch this right here, little boy. Take off and I do stuff. It's fun. My kids love it. Especially when I do it in front of their friends. It's great. <clears throat> anyway. The thing, the quote that I actually want to focus on in this particular clip is the one that Mater says at the end, it's easy to miss. He says, I don't need to look where I'm going. I just need to know where I've been. And that, I believe, is the most backwards way of driving your car that I can think of. But the truth of the quote is worth some serious consideration. You see, as we drive through this highway of life, 
So many people naturally put their car in drive, they look through the windshield, and they try to steer their lives towards their future, thinking that they can just trust their gut, that they can drive their car and live their lives perfectly fine. They look out the back window, they see their past, and in some of the side windows, they can see their present, and they try to make sense of it all, hoping that they can figure it out as they go. But the truth is that we weren't built to drive the way that our natural instincts tell us. The Bible says that we are in this world, but not of this world, and that we must constantly try to live by the Spirit and not by our gut feeling. And so God says that by comparison, we are created to drive backwards. And that truth of the idea was never more fully put on display than it was in our lives last year. Over the last 13 to 14 months, they have showed us emphatically that we really can't see where we're going. Oh, you might have had some plans, and that's cute to think that you know where you're going next. But the reality of the truth of this path is, is one that, that can only be known by the one who caused us to breathe in the first place. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a hope and a future. Just even at face value, this text is telling us that God knows the plan. It doesn't say God and you. It doesn't say that God's going to whisper to you the plan. It says, for God knows the plans of your life. He knows what's going on. Him, just him. Stop trying to figure it out. You're not going to know. Just So we live the life. If we're going to live this life the way the early church taught us, the way that Jesus told us, the way that God created us, we're going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. So that means that you don't need the big windshield to see where you're going because your eyes aren't good enough to see that anyway. You only need the rear view mirrors to make sure that you're keeping the car between the lines and to make sure that the cross of Christ is in line with the momentum of your journey. So God says, flip the car around and trust me. Believe that I am taking you through this life. And that goes against every fiber of our being because our flesh is self-preserving. Our DNA is encoded instinctually to live and to trust ourselves. We want to constantly make sure that the safety is in place that we got a good handhold on the wall that we're climbing, that we're going through this thing, that, that we're going to trust ourselves, that we're going to survive, we're going to fight. But Jesus shows us and teaches us that the only way through uh, is through the death of our flesh. It, the only way that we can live eternally is through the death of our flesh. Death brings about life, and that doesn't make any sense to the frontwards driving person. But what it means to us who have accepted Christ is that we have to daily lay down our urges to drive life by using the windshield, drive through life by using our windshield, which is tough, and I've tried it. In fact, in those moments, I, I, I sit as I'm trying to drive backwards and resist the urge to flip it around and put it in my own way. I tell God, it, it makes no sense to drive in reverse. Everyone else seems to be doing so well driving forward. I continue to look at God and I say, look, look at that person over there. They, they have more money than I do. It's a bigger home. They're always going out to the best restaurants, not just Chick-fil-A. They're always on vacations. God, I'm struggling. I can't figure it out. Can you still see me? Lord, I'm still here. Do you know where I'm at? All these people, they haven't figured out it. And I feel so alone. I feel depressed and worried and concerned and stressed. And all these emotions begin to flood into my life. And the one thing that I've learned, or one of the things that I'm trying to learn, maybe is a better way to say it, is that emotions can be a ridiculously funny thing. 
We were created with them. They are part of who we are. And yet, as we travel through these bendy roads of life, they can become the thing that limit our perspective. They cloud our vision and keep us from understanding what's happening in our lives right now. It reminds me of the winter months here in Pittsburgh. You may not know this about me, but I don't like to scrape windows. Wow, I'm learning so much about you today, Pastor Jonathan. I knew what everybody else's window preference was until I knew Now I know yours. All right. I'm not, I don't love to scrape the side windows of, of, my, of my car in the winter. Often, more times than not, I'll scrape the windshield, and, and I'll take care of the back window, uh, but I'm prone not to mess with the passenger and driver's side windows because it's too cold, my shoes are going to get wet, uh, I'll never leave enough time in the, in the morning to take care of those windows and fool around with them. I think eventually that the snow is going to blow off, and hopefully I can just wind the window down a little bit so I can get a glimpse of what's presently around me. And when we kind of do what this analogy we're talking about, I believe that our emotions can be like that ice or maybe even some dirt on our side windows because they can cloud our perspective and they can keep us from missing the truth of the life that's happening around us. When I look to the right and I look to the left and I see what's happening around us, what I'm looking at is my present life, what's happening in that moment. And if I don't scrape the dirt and the snow off of those windows, I, I have no true understanding of what's happening around me. And so the emotions accurately can keep us from accurately seeing what's happening and seeing what's happening in our worlds around us. So what we have to do, if we're going to allow the presence of God to transform our lives, we are going to have to, from time to time, scrape away the emotions, wind down the windows just so we can look past them, so that we can get an understanding of how much emotions can affect what we're looking at. Now, it's easy to bash emotions, especially in a very spiritual Christian environment, because emotions are, you know, whatever. We have to understand the foundational principles of the Word of God, and I truly believe that. But I also believe that we were created with emotions, and so emotions aren't always negative either. When we talk about a worship experience, we're talking about this emotional moment. I don't think it's possible to love someone or something without feeling any kind of emotion about it. I'll give you an example. Two days ago, we were driving back from uh, an event with a team night with the church, and Stacey and I were talking in the car about something that was coming up with one of our kids. And I immediately had my stomach drop because I got so emotional about making sure that they were okay, not wanting to see them get hurt, not wanting to see anything bad ever happen to them. I think about all the people in my life whom I love, and I, can, I don't like to think about if they ever got hurt, but I can know that if I ever get a call from my wife in an unexpected time, immediately my concern becomes emotional. I love her. I love my family. I love all these people around me. And if something were to happen to them, it'd be devastating. So emotions are a part of every relationship that we experience. So we have to have emotions as a part of our experience with God himself. So as I sing, Jaira, you are enough. There's this emotional connectivity that serves as an enhancement to my experience with him. I'm not just singing the words because I can hit that key or hit that note and that's what makes me emotional. I'm singing because there's a connectivity with God, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, who is able to come in and help me in my most desperate and difficult situations. There is a God who walks beside me, who helps me, who heals me, who restores me, who gives me strength that is there. And I love God and so much so that I can't sing his praises. I can't talk to him or about him without getting emotional, whether it's joy, whether it's we worry. There are emotions that happen in my relationship with God, and it has to be a part of our worship experience. If worship is going to be life, then there has to be emotions connected to it. 
Because our relationship with God is more than emotional, but it also means that our emotions are going to have to be a part of it. We have to understand that our emotions, like everything else in this world, when used as God created and intended them to be used, are a beautiful part of this life. They are essential to living a life of worship. However, and this is where it's really important to think about, they can also be manipulated by the enemy. They can become thing that, the thing that tears churches apart. The thing that most often is used to take us away from this idea that worship is life. It pulls us out of this mindset mindset that we understand that we serve the same God. There are literally hundreds of churches, thousands of churches perhaps, in western Pennsylvania. A great percentage of them, like 99% of them, teaching the word of God, that Jesus is the son of God, crucified, risen again, and coming back for his church in glory. And, and there are all these other churches, but there's this this feeling that, that, that somehow this one's better than that. Or this idea is better than this one. And you know where all that starts? It starts out of emotions. Somebody's upset about this. Somebody's upset about that. So I'm going to go over here and do my own thing. God says, listen, I love you. I want you all just to worship together and not allow the emotions to be the thing that tears me apart. Now, doctrinally, there's, there is a true doctrine. There is a true theology. There's, that's a whole different discussion. But we can't allow emotions to become the things that ever tear us apart and pull us further away from this idea that worship is life. One of my favorite phrases that Pastor Rich shares with me is that grace is messy. And the reason he says that is because grace has to be extended no matter how you feel about the other person. Because God gave me grace no matter how many times I messed up, including that sentence right there. God loves me and has grace for me no matter how many times I do the same thing over and over and over and over again. There's still grace for me because of what he did on the cross. God says, I love you. And there's an emotional connectivity. We know Jesus is emotional. We got, God has emotions. He created us in his image. So that exists. There's an emotion there. But, but God uses them perfectly. And he loves me emotionally, truly, through all commitment, without fail, all these other things. And so in the same way, if I'm going to live this life where worship is life, then I have to understand that my emotions must be put in check. They must be used the way that God created them to be used and, and, and allow this opportunity to, to, to allow me to extend grace and not get clouded by what's happening in my particular present. So where does this worship is life mentality come from? I think the right answer might be obvious and odd, kind of all at the same time, given the content of everything we've talked about up until this point. It comes from the view out of the windshield, from the backwards believing drive. I'm going to say it again. Worship is life comes from the view out of the windshield, from the backwards belie- driving believer. Because as you look back, right, you're in your car, you're going this way, maybe that's better. That is my best side, but. Anyway, um, when you're looking backwards, what you see out the windshield are, I'm sorry, I lost my place. When you look back, you get to see all the times that God has brought you through, all the moments where the present circumstances told you that it was over, 
All the moments when you thought that you were alone. As you look at that windshield and you look back to see what God has done, you see how he's been with you every step of the way. When you look out the windshield of your car as you're driving backwards, you realize that it doesn't matter where you're going because you have seen where you have been. It is a true look back to see how faithful God is, how that you'll find strength as you wait. You'll find courage to stand firm. You'll see the wisdom in waiting for God to fight your battles. When you uh, check out where you've been, you see this little boy who was 10 years old and he raises his hand in a 90 degree tent, a 90 degree temperature tent, and he asks Jesus into his life. And at that time in his life, he could not discern the difference between God and a hole in the ground. But eventually he gets the chance to follow God through the toughest season of anyone's life. And he comes through it with his, with his, without as much as a scrape because God said no matter where you go, I'm with you. I'm going to follow after you, and I'm going to stand beside you, and I'm going to go in front of you, and I'm going to be everywhere that you are because I'm going to lead you. So you're not going to walk away from me if you just flip your car around backwards and you trust me for just a moment. You'll see I got you. You'll see that I've got this all taken care of. 2020 was a year that showed me what happens when you wait, when you allow God to do that. It gave me this glimpse of heaven, and there was these moments throughout the last 13 or 14 months that I wanted to punch the virus, the government, the whole world just straight in the face, just a big punch in the face. But God showed me that he already delivered me. He already took care of me. And now I get to stand in front of you and tell you that worship is life. Worship isn't just some person singing at the top of their lungs out of key as tears run down their face. Worship is more than just making some sort of simple moral life choice that where we decide, oh, I'm going to use less swear words, or I'm going to buy as much Chick-fil-A as possible, or I'm going to appear as happy as I can all the time. That's not worship is life. Those are the stereotypes the world doesn't need. The world needs transformed worshipers who not only worship God on Sunday mornings when it's convenient, but who daily, daily break bread with their heavenly father and tell them, tell him about their lives. Worship is embracing the life-giving wisdom that God grants to me while I'm trying to, to, by the world standards, drive backwards and not be concerned about where I'm going because I know where I've been. The rest of the world's going to look at me driving backwards and go, you're crazy. Just like Lightning McQueen did the mayor. He's crazy. Yeah, you're a special kind of crazy. You're the kind of crazy that God created you to be. It may seem backwards, but that doesn't mean that it is backwards. It's actually the way that you were created to drive. So what if we, what if we treated each day as if worship is life? What if we turned our lives around and over to God and said, Pops, from this moment on, I'm going to go the way that you created me to go. I'm going to do it the way that you created me to do it. And then what if we said to our family and our friends and, and our members who are standing beside, who are sitting in this lane beside us, wondering, dude, why is your car pointed that way? Why don't you come in and see? Why don't you invite them into your car? Sit in the seat next to me. Understand and see out the windshield. 
field as I drive backwards. All the times in my life where God brought me, delivered me, saved me, gave me strength to overcome, gave me insight, gave me understanding, gave me peace in the middle of a storm. Why don't you come and see what God has done for me? Why don't you come and take a look at what God is doing in my life? Because unless you're sitting inside of the car with the driver, it's really difficult to understand the perspective that they have. That's the fellowship that we can share, the breaking of bread, as Luke called it. The time that they spend in the car with us, seeing why we worship the King the way that we do, can not only be transformative for us, but it can change someone else's world as well. Church, that's what I want to encourage you with. What if we live like worship is life? Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for all that you've done, for all that you're doing, and Lord, for all that you're going to do in our lives. Father, we thank you for being a patient, gracious God who loves us, who takes care of us, who's met us here. And now, Father, as we enter into some time of worship, we ask that you would meet us in a real and exciting way. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I hope you found something practical to use in your life today. At Grace Collective, our mission is to connect people to Jesus. Everyone, everywhere, every day. You can visit gracecollectivechurch.com to learn more about our church and how you can get involved.